Acts chapter 20 will open up with verses 6 through 12 as our opening text. Acts 20 verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till the break of day, so he departed and they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. By way of review, we ended last week in Acts chapter 20 verse 7. And I presented the understanding that this account that we just read is an out-of-the-ordinary gathering rather than a model for an ordinary reoccurring gathering. I believe what took place here did not take place because early Christians always met for church on the first day of the week, but rather because Paul was visiting the Christians in Troas and leaving on the first day of the week. So they organized a fellowship meal with Paul the evening before and they spent as much time with him as they could discussing matters in the spirit or matters in the scriptures. Last week we saw that the timing in Acts 20 and 6 verse 7 at the earliest was the beginning of the second month on the Hebrew calendar and it was possibly the second day of the second month, the day after the new moon. And we also saw that the phrase, the first day of the week, is a good translation of the Greek phrase, mia ton sabaton. That's because sabaton in the Greek New Testament can either mean a Sabbath, Sabbaths, or the interval between two Sabbaths a week. So we want to do some more exegesis in Acts chapter 20 today, and we'll pick this up in verse 7. Once again, it says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. The next two things that this verse mentions is, one, that the disciples had come together to break bread, and two, that Paul preached unto them. Now, this is why many Christian scholars believe that we have precedent for a first-day church service in the New Testament. This is the primary text. There are a couple of other other secondary texts. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, which talks about a monetary gathering on the first day of the week that has nothing to do about passing an offering plate, by the way, if you read it in context. It has to do with the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then there's Revelation 1, verse 10, where John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And they read later history back into Revelation and think that when John said Lord's Day, he was talking about Sunday. I don't think so. I think John was talking about the day of Yahweh, a very apocalyptic phrase in the Old Testament. But this is the primary text that they would go to. They see the breaking of bread here to be the Lord's Supper and then Paul's preaching to be a model of what they do on Sunday morning. 
For example, Adam Clark, a commentator that I generally consult and that I would ask you to consult in your studies because he has a lot of good things to say about the Bible. He says this in Acts 20 and verse 7. I do not agree with what he says, but this is what he says. Upon the first day of the week, what was called the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, in which they commemorated the resurrection of our Lord, and which among all Christians afterwards took place of the Jewish Sabbath, to break bread, to break the Eucharist, as the Syriac has it, intimating by this that they were accustomed to receive the Holy Sacrament on each Lord's Day. It is likely that besides this they received a common meal together. Some think the love feast is intended. Now you can pull up several Bible commentaries at BibleHub.com. I use BibleHub.com and BlueLetterBible.com and StepBible.org, I think it is, for Bible study. Great resources there. But you'll find that most of them at BibleHub.com say something similar to Adam Clark in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, I want to let you know this, that what you're going to hear from me last week and this week is the minority view. There are scholars that hold the understanding that I have, but they are few in comparison to how many scholars take the position that Adam Clark just took when we read him. So I would suggest that you always consult a multitude of scholars and theologians, whether they agree with you or not. But that does not mean that you always have to agree with them. I disagree with Adam Clark on his commentary in Acts 20, verse 7. Sometimes the scholars and theologians will disagree with each other. And so what you are required to do is do your very best to ascertain and understand the meaning of the text in the context and the culture that it was written in. Now, before I begin to break this text down, I want to point out that I can understand how Adam Clark arrives at his conclusions in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, I know that the tendency for Torah keepers, Messianic Hebrew roots people, is to immediately holler when they see something like this, to immediately holler sun worship or paganism. But I can assure you, Adam Clark is much more intelligent than that. He's probably smarter than anybody else in here, the truth be known. Me and Brother Arnold often marvel at how he was able to do so much study and writing without a computer and all the languages that he spoke and all the writing that he did by hand. It's marvelous. It's amazing. I don't think that there's a Sunday conspiracy going on here. I know if I was to say... Sunday conspiracy, or if I was to make this out to be something pagan or sun worship or something like that, and title my YouTube lesson that I've put on YouTube about this, if I was to do that, I'd probably get more hits and views on YouTube. <laughs> but I'm not interested in hits and views, brothers and sisters. I had a fellow I had a discussion with. This is a little rabbit trail, but I'll say it. I had a discussion with a fellow lately, and he because I would not see something that he was showing me, he said, I believe that the reason that you can't see what I'm trying to tell you is because of your mild internet fame. And I started laughing. I said, man, you know how many likes I get on my ministry page? I said, I'm doing good if I get a post and I get 18 likes on my ministry page. That's a good post. I got like 220 people that like the page. And all these lessons from Passover to Easter, I put them all on YouTube for people to study. I think the best video has got like 46 views. 
mild internet thing. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes when people can't attack the message, they attack the messenger. So anyhow, that made me laugh. I thought it would make you laugh. I'm not interested in fame, fortune. I don't worry about how many views I get. I just want to put something out there for people to be blessed by and learn and understand from. And my dad always told me anything worth doing is worth doing right. And so we want to do, I believe it pleases Yahweh that when we do something for Yahweh, we do the best that we can. So I want to use the remainder of this lesson to show you why I disagree with most commentators' approach to Acts 27 through 12. To begin with, this in Acts 20 is not a morning service. It's not a Sunday morning service. It's not a first day morning service. Let me remind you that the names Sunday through Saturday and their Greek and Latin forerunners are not found anywhere in the Bible. They existed. The names, at least the Greek and Latin forerunners for Sunday through Saturday existed at the time of the Messiah. But they're not found in the Bible. And that's because the Hebrews called their weekly days by numbers. Day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, preparation, Shabbat, Sabbath. Okay, there can be no doubt that the empty tomb of Yeshua was found early in the morning on the first day of the week at the rising of the sun. That's what Mark 16 verse 2 says. He resurrected prior to that, but that's when the empty tomb was found by the women. The women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, I have no problem with Yeshua resurrecting on the first day of the week. I believe that. He resurrected on the morrow after the Sabbath. And I also have no problem with the sunrise, the rising of the sun, on wave sheaf day, Abib 16, as being metaphorical or a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. I don't have any problem with that at all. I think that's very biblical. But Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 is not an early morning, first day of the week meeting as we're accustomed to see in church culture today. Most theologians say this when you read, we worship in the morning on the first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Acts 27 through 12 is said by them to give us a precedent for that, but it does not fit what they are doing. Throughout this text that we read, if you've noticed, we have several references showing us that this was a night gathering, not a day gathering. Midnight is mentioned in verse 7. Verse 8 says there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. Verse 9 says that a fellow named Eutychus fell asleep. And then verse 11 says that Paul departed at daybreak. All of these references point to a night gathering, and not just any night gathering, but an all-night-long gathering. Paul departed at daybreak, the text says. He stayed up all night with the Christians at Troas. Again, I want to mention and remind you that I believe the Christians at Troas organized a fellowship meal with the apostle because they wanted to spend all night with him, the last night that he was going to be with them. They wanted to spend as much time with him knowing he'd be leaving the next morning. It was not every day that a special apostle was with you at your congregation. And I believe that's why they gathered together on the last night of his stay. It was an out-of-the-ordinary gathering. It was not a habitual reoccurring thing or a model thing. It was out of the ordinary, and it was organized to pick the apostle Paul's brain as much as those Christians could. 
So it was not a first day morning gathering. That's the first point. And the next point concerns the breaking of bread. Some people believe that the breaking of bread here in this text is the Lord's Supper. But that would be reading something into the text that it does not say. The text just says they had gathered together or came together to break bread. There's no mention of the Lord's Supper like in 1 Corinthians 11. No mention. There's no mention of the cup in the Lord's Supper. The cup is just as much a part of the supper as the bread. The cup is the body. Um, excuse me, the blood of Christ. Representative. The bread is the body of Christ. To break bread in the New Testament can carry in some places the meaning of breaking the bread of the body of Christ. But it can also carry the meaning of coming together for table fellowship. While I might say today, I had dinner with Rocket and Phyllis last evening. It used to be said, I broke bread with Rocket and Phyllis last evening. That's the way people talked. Because bread is the staple of life. It stood for food in general. Psalm 104 said that Yahweh gives bread to strengthen a man's heart. That's because there's natural B vitamins in bread. It stood for food in general. It's one of the most common foods eaten then and now. This is why in the Lord's Prayer we are told to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't mean we're just praying for a loaf. We're praying for food in general, see. But bread is the staple of life. It stands for sustenance, daily sustenance, because it's such important. It strengthens our heart, literally. So earlier in the book of Acts, the same author, Luke, Remember, Luke wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke speaks of breaking of bread being done daily by the followers of Yeshua. And I believe that Luke's writing about common table fellowship among believers. Look at this. Acts 2, 41 through 42 and verse 46. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Verse 46 speaks of daily fellowship and breaking bread from house to house. That's eating meals together. That's spending time together. Christian fellowship. See, when I invite somebody over to my house from our congregation, or if you invite me over to your house, the odds are extremely high that we're going to sit down at the table together, we're going to eat a meal, and then we're going to pray. It's Christian fellowship. During our meal, something about the Bible is going to come up. I'll make sure of that, that we talk about the Bible. It's my favorite, favorite thing to talk about is the Scriptures. And we're going to enjoy fellowship one with another. Whether or not there was bread on the table, whether or not my wife made a loaf of bread, we broke bread with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, I think that singleness here in Acts 2.46 means simplicity and unity. The early congregation in the Messiah lived much more simple and unified lives than most Christians do now. Even old town life a hundred years ago was more simple and unified. 
this is not my message, but I would encourage you to do something in your life to make it more simple. We're far too much in a hurry nowadays. Do something to make it more simple. Even a hundred years ago, and especially in the book of Acts, people lived closer to each other. And because you live closer to somebody, it means you are closer to that somebody. You're in community with them. Acts chapter 2 even tells us that the early believers, they were all together and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions, at least many of them did, sold their possessions and they gave what they earned from the sale of the silver or the coins to the apostles. And then the apostles would distribute monetary out to each person as they had need. No one lacked and they were all equal. That's singleness of heart. And I just want to say right now because we're in the feast and I wanted to put a little something in this sermon that I appreciate our little assembly here in Conyers, Georgia. I appreciate everybody. We're all part of the body. I don't believe that we live as close together as the early assembly. But I do believe that those who are faithful here have the same heart as the Christians in the early assembly. We are not perfect by any means. There is no perfect church. I saw one one time working up in Atlanta. The name of it was called the perfect church. I did. I'm the pastor here and I have many flaws. And if you hang around with me long enough, you're going to find them. That's why you should never look to me, but you look to the Messiah. I can shepherd you. I'm called to lead you. And there are qualifications for leadership in the congregation. But I'm not the Messiah. I'm not perfect. I've sinned. And I pray that you would be patient with me. No matter what church you go to, if you want to find a reason to complain, you'll find it. Amen. Amen. But I feel like we're more than your average church. I feel like we're family. And that's how it's supposed to be, isn't it? Yeshua says, who is my family? It's those that do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, I believe I could call on any of you brothers and sisters if I was in need and my need would be met somehow. And the same goes for you to me. I think about Brother Dennis, Brother Dennis Hudson. Remember when he broke both of his legs? Man couldn't walk right before Passover one year. He was wanting to observe Passover, but he was in the hospital. Couldn't walk. And we saw him get better little by little. And him and Sister Barbara would sit right there where TJ and Kim sat. That was their designated seats for a while. And I remember when he got well, Sister Barbara and, and Dennis testified one night. He said, you know, he doesn't know what they would have done without the body of the Messiah. Helping him out. He said, we looked for a long time to find the body of the Messiah. And he said, I believe we found one here. And I believe he was right. We're here for each other. I appreciate all of you. It means a lot to me. But even more important than that, it means a lot to Yahweh. 
So enough for that rabbit trail before I start crying. The breaking of bread does not have to mean the Lord's Supper. Here in Acts chapter 2, it doesn't mean the Lord's Supper. It's just something they've done daily. It's table fellowship. I believe it's the same thing in Acts chapter 20. Look at Acts 20 verse 11, which was in our opening text. It says, when he therefore was come up again, this is after Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. It says, when he was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed. See, this is after the raising of Eutychus from the dead. And the phrase breaking of bread is associated with the word eaten, which implies hunger. That's a word that's used in the context of satisfying hunger. You eat because you're hungry. That's not something that the Lord's Supper is for, right? 1 Corinthians 11 says you have houses to eat and drink in to fulfill your hunger and your thirst. The Lord's Supper is not a supper designed to satisfy your hunger. It's a memorial of the body and blood of Christ. So Paul's not taking the Lord's Supper here. And this breaking of bread didn't happen till after midnight. Remember, verse 7 said Paul continued his speech till midnight. Then Eutychus fell out of a window. Paul raised him from the dead. He went back to the upper chamber. He broke bread and ate. He had table fellowship. And he kept talking to the break of day. Acts 20 and 7 does not say that they broke bread at the beginning of their gathering. It just says the disciples gathered together to break bread. And they did after midnight. Probably what happened is kind of like something that's happened to me before is you get so wrapped up in discussing the Bible that you forgot to eat and you worked up an appetite. I've done that many times with brothers where I got to talking and we talked for three or four hours and wouldn't even realize that the time went by. Then I say, I got to have something to eat. Brother Matthew's hungry. Now, did Paul preach to them? That brings me to my next point about Paul's preaching to them. It's possible that Paul may have preached some type of a sermon to them. I preach sermons to people even though it wasn't on the Sabbath day. That's fine. I've had people over to my house for a Bible study and a meal and it didn't have anything to do with a holy convocation or a Sabbath. That's fine. But I think there's something more to this word preached in verse 7 than we get from just reading the King James Version. Now, this is going to be kind of quick. But we're going to do a little word study here. A lot of people get off track when they do word studies because they don't know how to use a Strong's Concordance or a Thayer's or Vines or Kittles or something like that. And I think that's something we should learn to use properly. Maybe I need to teach a lesson on how to use those things in the near future. But we're going to do a little word study here on this word preached. And Paul preached to them is not a wrong translation from the Greek, but it's not the most accurate translation. So it's not that the King James Version is in error when it says Paul preached, but it's not the most accurate way to translate this from the Greek New Testament into our English Bible. Consider these other translations of the Bible. This is one thing you want to do when you study a word. If you're going to say that a word should be translated differently than the translation that you're reading then the odds are great that you're going to be able to find it translated differently in other scholarly translations. Because if you come up with your own way that a word should be translated, it's probably not right. Because you're not a linguist. You're not a theologian in those areas, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Look at these other Bibles. English Standard Version. Paul talked with them, intending to leave the next day. The Lexham English Bible, fairly new translation. 
Paul began conversing with them because he was going to leave on the next day. The Scriptures, 2009, says, Shaul, intending to depart the next day, was reasoning with them. And then Young's literal translation, Paul was discoursing to them about to depart on the morrow. Now, the reason that these other Bible translations do not read preached, as in Paul preached to them, is because the Greek word used here is diolegomai. And it is where we get our later English word, dialogue, to discuss. Look how Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word. To think different things with oneself, mingle thought with thought. So you're thinking about something in your mind. Okay, that's one. One A. To ponder or revolve in your mind, meditate. Number two, to converse, discourse with one, argue, and discuss. Also check out this reference from Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. All of these can be found, by the way, at blueletterbible.org. This is how Mr. Vine, W.E. Vine, defines this Greek word. Discourse, primarily to ponder, resolve in one's mind. Dia, through, lego, to say. Then to converse, dispute, discuss, discourse with, most frequently to reason or dispute with. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, the revised version, reasoneth with, is to be preferred to the authorized version. By the way, that's the KJV. Speaketh unto. Then it says the authorized version translates it preached in Acts 27 through 9. There's our text. This, the revised version, corrects to discoursed. Literally, dialogue. I.e., not by way of a sermon, but by a discourse of a more conversational character. See, dispute, preach, reason, speak in the Septuagint, and it lists references there in the Septuagint. So this Greek word, dialegomai, is used 13 times in the New Testament. And in the King James Bible, catch this, in the King James Bible, it is translated as dispute six times, to reason with twice, reason twice, preach unto once, preach once, and speak once. One alternate example in the KJV in Acts 18 verse 4 says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Could you call what Paul was doing preaching? You could. But it's better to understand that he's reasoning, he's discoursing, he's discussing, he's dialoguing with them. So in Acts 27 through 12, I believe that Paul was reasoning or discussing with the Christians in Troas all night. He wasn't preaching to them like I'm doing right now you might call certain portions of what he said preaching. Because I believe that he probably was thorough and long in some of his answers to their questions. Sometimes if somebody asks me a question, my wife says, I get long-winded. Just get to the point, Matthew. And I believe that we should get to the point, but there's sometimes a lot of things that build up to that point. Amen? <laughs> so it takes time. And, and I like to explain myself thoroughly. So... It's not a holy convocation in Acts 20 where a pastor or elder is giving a sermon or something like that. It's a discourse. So we might paraphrase Acts 20 and verse 7 like this. This is a paraphrase, the Matthew Jansen translation, the MJ translation. It reads, In the evening, at the beginning of the first day of the week, we gathered together for a fellowship meal. Paul discussed with the people and kept on speaking until midnight since he was going to leave in the morning. 
I believe that this was an out-of-the-ordinary occurrence rather than a habitual reoccurring custom. I don't believe that Acts 20 verse 7 gives us a precedent for a habitual model of a first-day church service. Definitely not a morning service. This is in the mind of Adam Clark and many commentators of the Bible. I just believe that they're in error on the way that they understand these verses. And with that being said, this is the only place in the entire New Testament that would even begin to possibly insinuate a reoccurring first-day church service. There is nothing else in the New Testament to go to. If this passage does not prove such, then we don't have anything in the New Testament showing that the earliest Christians gathered together every first day of the week for church. And it's because they didn't. That was something that came later. It did come early. It actually came in the 2nd century A.D., but it was not done in the 1st century by the earliest Christians. So let me preview you for next week, which will be the last lesson in this series. The first day of the week service developed from the resurrection of Christ. That's how it developed. I do not believe that it developed from sun worship or paganism or Constantine. That's a huge myth. It's one that a lot of people believe just because it sounds good and you want to believe that. It developed from the resurrection of Christ. Christians saw the, the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week and the, the coming to the empty tomb by the women as later Christians saw that as a reason that, hey, we're going to come together for worship on the first day of the week. The earliest Christians did not do this. Second century, some second century Christians did. The New Testament shows that the earliest Christians kept the Sabbath and they gathered on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, when Paul was preaching to both the Jews and the Greeks, the Gentiles, it says that the Gentiles besought that these words might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. I was in a debate one time with a Church of Christ guy and I asked him the question. I said, why didn't Paul invite the Gentile Christians to the first day service? Now, I believe that Paul didn't invite them to the first day service because a first day service didn't exist at that time. <laughs> okay, But he pushed the first day of the week and when he got back up for his speech, he said, I don't know why Paul didn't invite him. He said, I'd have been begging him to come to the first day service. He shook his fist like that. <laughs> and it made me smile. But you won't find that in the Bible. They besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And then it says, and the next Sabbath, almost the entire city came to hear the word or the message of the gospel be preached. And Paul and Barnabas preached to the Jews first, but then they wouldn't receive it. So he said, well, we turn to the nations. We turn to the Gentiles. So they kept the Sabbath. They kept the feast days just like they had been doing when Yeshua was on earth. You know, Yeshua always kept the Sabbath day. Luke 4.16 says, as his custom was, he entered into the synagogue or the place of worship every Sabbath day. The earliest Christians also kept the Pesach feast on the 14th day of Abib. Guess what? Just like Yeshua kept it on the 14th day of Abib. He kept it in his life for about 32 years from the time that he was born all the way up until the, the time that he died. He kept the Pesach feast. I believe, I can't prove this, but this is just Brother Matthew talking and thinking, okay? Sometimes Paul said, I give you my opinion, okay? I believe that it's quite possible that Yeshua himself sacrificed the Passover lamb. And the reason I believe that, you can do your own study on this, the reason I believe that is because the, the, the Pesach lamb was sacrificed by the head of a household, 
which would have been Joseph prior to his death. Theologians say that the last place, and you can read the book of Luke, the last place that Joseph, Yeshua's legal father, his earthly father, is mentioned is in Luke 2 when, when he left Yeshua in Jerusalem at the temple when he was 12 years old. They said the, the reason he's mentioned only there and not elsewhere in any of the Gospels is because it's likely that he died. And when the father would die, the head of the household fell to the firstborn son, which Yeshua was. So it is very likely that after Joseph's death, Yeshua himself may have actually sacrificed, literally, the Pesach lamb. That's something to think about. I can't prove that, but it's something to meditate on. Anyhow, we know that he kept the Passover, and we know that he kept the feast days. Only later did some Christians decide to celebrate the Pasha or the Pesach feast on the Sunday that came after the 14th day of Abib. This later practice is where we get Easter Sunday. It wasn't called Easter Sunday back in the 2nd century. It was called Pasha. And some Christians still kept it on the 14th day of Abib. Other Christians kept it on the Sunday that came after the 14th day of Abib. So if you think about it, we kept Pesach yesterday, right? And then Easter was today. You always find that Easter lands after the 14th day of Abib. That's because Easter in part is determined by the solar lunar calendar. You know Easter fell on April 1st this year, right? It won't fall on April 1st next year. It fluctuates because it's partly a solar lunar event mixed with a Gregorian calendar. See, Here's the thing. Whether these Christians' intentions were good or noble or not, the ones that kept Pasha on the Sunday after Passover, whether their intentions were noble or not doesn't really matter. And this is why. Because there is nothing in the Bible that gives us any authorization to move the Pesach feast from the 14th day of Abib to the Sunday that comes after the 14th day of Abib. Whether you say, well, we're doing it to commemorate the resurrection, whether it's noble, whether you think it's right or not, there's no authorization in the Bible to do that. I want to keep it when Yeshua kept it. I want to keep it when his apostles kept it. Right, Brother Jerry? Amen. That's what I want to do. I want to do things like my Messiah. So I'll discuss this more in detail in the next lesson. We'll wrap this up. And I believe that you'll be blessed by, by what the Bible has to say and what I have to share from history as well. And hopefully you're learning some things in this series. I know that was a lot to take in again in a short amount of time. This sermon actually is already on YouTube. I uploaded it before I came to church. And you can watch all the slides and it's only about 18 minutes long on YouTube, so it's shorter than my sermon, because I kind of ad-lib during my sermon. <laughs> but it's shorter than my sermon, but you can watch it with all the slides. You can pause it. You can take notes. You can open up your Bible. You can go on Vines. You can go on Strong's. You can go behind me and study like a good Berean should study to show yourself approved workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. So I put all that up there for, uh, for helping the body of Christ, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we're learning and, and growing. So next week we'll finish this. I want to teach more and get back into the book of Galatians. That's where my heart is right now. But when the feast rolls around, I like to talk a little bit about the feast. Okay, especially we've got some new newcomers here and, and everybody's not on the same understanding and learning of the feast. And so it's good that we go back over these things. And for those of us that think we already know everything, because we've been here so long, Peter said, this is the second time I write unto thee 
to stir up your minds by way of reminder. <laughs> Amen? Amen? So we've got to stir up our minds by way of reminder. Do you know if we stopped keeping Passover, eventually our children would forget about the Passover if we stopped keeping it? I don't want to preach another sermon. I could do it right now, but I don't want to preach another sermon. So let's stand and close in a word of prayer. And as we close or before we close, I want to bless you. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for a good understanding. Help us, Yahweh, where we err. Show us our faults. Forgive us of our sins. Even as King David said, reveal unto us our hidden sins. Father, help us to grow more in grace and in knowledge with your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, the Christians at Troas. Thank you for Acts 27 through 12. And Father, may we be back here next week to do this all over again. Give us a good feast of unleavened bread. We pray all these things through your Son. Amen.